This is Dissecting Dragons, the speculative fiction podcast for writers and readers by writers and readers. Hello and welcome to Dissecting Dragons. I'm Madeleine Vaughan. And I'm Jules Ironside. This week, Exuding Menace 101, How to Create Threatening Villains. Okay, so this week um, we are diving into that subject, villains. Oh, so prickly. Uh, Now, uh, why are we doing this episode? Well, other than the fact that everyone loves a good villain, um, (laughs) depending on what genre you're writing, uh, you're going to need a different balance of characteristics in your antagonist. Yeah, but let's assume you're writing something that calls for an actual villain. There is obviously a slight difference between an antagonist and a villain. Yeah. How do you create a villain who is both believable and menacing? Now, uh, I am just going to go ahead and say, uh, spoiler alert uh, here for something. (laughs) Uh, But essentially, it's not just making them as cruel and detestable as possible. Sorry, guys. Um, In fact, that can even work against you. Yeah, so let's get into it. Okay. So we're going to begin by thinking about how you can set yourself up for success. Uh, And the first question to ask yourself is, is your villain more powerful than your hero? This is one of the most usual mistakes um, that we kind of see, especially with newbie writers. If you give your hero too much candy, um, check out our candy episode for reference on that, or you end up overpowering them, no one is actually going to believe that the villain is a genuine threat. Yeah, and that's going to make creating genuine conflict between your hero and villain almost impossible. Uh, Best case scenario, the villain will have to outwit the hero at every turn, but your audience probably still won't feel they're a genuine threat. In fact, your audience might start gunning for the villain instead, because they're using cunning instead. Now, one way of looking at this is to consider Loki and how Loki has evolved in the Marvel franchise. Um, He's only really a villain, villain, villain in one film. Otherwise, he's mostly just an antagonist at best uh, because he's just not powerful enough to defeat all the Avengers and he doesn't really have any allies of his own except in that one film. Now, we all love the character, but does anyone feel he's threatening, aside from maybe in uh, the first Thor film? And I think, also, to be honest, he is threatening in sort of Avengers Assemble, the first one, but only because he's kind of got a whole army at his back and he's being sort of mind-controlled. But... Yeah. (laughs) For the most part, he's... (laughs) You don't, you know, you don't really see him, him as being massively scary (laughs) it's kind of a lack of motivation and and a lack of motive thing as well as in because you know with the characters um inclinations and motives being quite spurious anyway as in sometimes he does things just for the hell of it Mm -hmm. um i think you also don't feel like there's a clear goal or clear plan for him a lot of the time he's just kind of like well, I feel like doing something mercurial in this moment, so I'm going to do this. Yeah, and it is a perfect example of, the the in his case, him being more of an antagonistic character, whereby 
the, the heroes tend to be more powerful than him, but he's using cunning to kind of sidestep and move around, which again is probably why a lot of people end up liking him, even though he does very, very bad, no good things. <laughs> yeah. Now, power comes in many forms, physical, magical, technological, political, intellectual, influential. It doesn't have to be a strength for strength match. Yeah. Now, any villain worth their salt is not going to go toe-to-toe with a hero on the hero's own turf. Um, You know, Lex Luthor does not get into a punching match with Superman unless he is in a Superman-equivalent-powered power suit. (laughs) Yes. Yeah, except under very exceptional circumstances. Yeah. Um, Your villain must be capable of defeating your hero, but it doesn't have to be on a like-for-like basis, and actually you're better off if it's not. Yeah. So consider your conflicts. What are they? Are you having a genuine physical smackdown? Is it a courtroom showdown of some kind? Uh, Battles of wits? Battles of magical prowess? If the major conflicts in your story are all physical fights and your main character is the only one with combat abilities, then the best case scenario is your MC ploughing their way through numerous minions, which carries its own issues. Yeah. Um, And that doesn't make for a satisfying story overall. Yeah. So how can you fix that? Well, by making your hero an underdog um, and putting them in situations where they are continually out of their depth. Yeah. Final turning points between the hero and villain should be weighted in the villain's favour almost every time. Yep. But the the hero will have something that the villain doesn't. Friends! <laughs> no, I'm just... <laughs> but so often, yes. <laughs> the power of friendship. Okay. <laughs> With that in mind, you do want to avoid cartoonish evil. Yes. Uh, when villains show off how evil they are, <laughs> thinking of Mumra the ever-living, um, they actually lose credibility. Uh, this includes killing minions whenever they are disappointed or lashing out just because they can. Yeah. Um, now, this doesn't mean that you can't have a villain who does those kinds of things, but have it solve something other than, you know, a temper tantrum. So, for example, Kylo Ren you know, attacks a control panel, you know, that that's not really threatening. Uh, Kingpin going from softly spoken business mongol to beating a disobedient minion to death with his bare hands is. <laughs> um, yeah. And again, it's kind of about what you're trying to intend. So one thing that people could say about Kylo Ren is it's like he's not actually meant to be scary in there. He's meant to look like a little spoiled brat. Um, and if that's what you're going for, then you succeeded. Um, but... I'm not sure that's what the creators intended. Well, I know, but like, <laughs> I think that's definitely what I read from the situation, and I thought that that seems like fit for the character is that he's just a spoiled brat throwing his toys out of the pram. Um, so you can do that if you wanted to, but make sure you're doing it for effect. If you're actually trying to create someone scary, yes, the sharp contrast of Kingpin is one of the things that is so alarming about him because he can go from one to the other very, very fast. Yeah. And it's like, I'm just thinking of this one scene from Daredevil and it is, I think he he's either just got out of the limo or he's about to get in one and instead he turns around and just absolutely, you know, takes this guy down 
yeah and just keep and it's the fact he keeps going and it's done on a coin toss and there's almost no emotion in his face when he's doing it as well yeah and i think the other thing is and kingpin is someone that we've sort of pinned actually uh, about being an excellent uh, villain in a lot of our other conversations about villains um because he's also not just going for the whole you happen to be the person who's closest this guy has actually genuinely displeased him so far as i remember yeah um it's not just a necessarily a shoot the messenger kind of thing though there is an element essentially of this loss of control which is not actually something that kingpin wants to do if that makes sense because he's curating this whole sort of i don't have to be the one who gets my hands dirty um and this whole i'm actually going to make positive change or i'm going to make change or i'm going to do what i what i need to do um and it's not going to be simple you know violence so it adds to the complexity of his character by having these two massive contrasts between someone who is soft-spoken who is engaging who is intellectual who is um very polite a lot of the time to someone who is capable of beating a man to death with his bare hands yeah so cruelty can play a role in making a villain threatening, but it, it should serve a purpose. It shouldn't be there just for the sake of showing that this person is cruel. Yes, and you also kind of need to understand, um, you know, uh, what what the purpose, you know, sort of what the character is. So you, you, want to, you might want to show their prowess, you know, does being cruel in this instant actually take any skill? Uh, probably not however defeating enemy defenses does so make your villain not only competent but masterful and if you do want to show them being cruel don't just kind of go for the well i need to show that they're a bad person so they're going to kick a dog why why are they kicking the dog what are they getting out of kicking the dog if they're this big evil mastermind you know why are they going out of their way to kick a dog unless there is something that they are getting out of it. So sometimes people just go, oh, I want them to be a bad person, so I'm just going to put in, like, stickers of what, what cruelty looks like, instead of actually thinking about what cruelty will look like for this particular person, or what they will do, which is cruel, in order to meet their aims or to fulfil their desires. Yeah, I mean, I do find that kind of lazy writing. It's like the whole using rape threat to say this is a bad guy thing. Yeah, And exactly. then not bothering to give them characterisation. I do get that there was an entire school of thought of, you know, save the cat, kick the dog kind of thing. Say who's the good guy, who's the bad guy. Um, but I do think you can, that there needs to be more than that if you want someone to be a credible villain or a credible hero, to be honest. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and again, it's why Kingpin always comes to mind, because he's a very credible villain. And at no point do you see him making rape threats or showing needless cruelty to kind of like, you don't see him just saying, right, we'll go grab the nearest child so I can beat them or going out of his way to bring dogs and bring dogs in or torture them because he's a villain. But that's not the kind of person he is. He is his own complete character. You can understand his villainy, even if you don't agree with it, even if you think that everything he, the things he does are abhorrent. He He's a rounded character. His villainy is believable. His cruelty is believable for him. 
Yeah, absolutely. And it has limits as well. I mean, I yeah. don't know if you saw the Hawkeye series. Yes. And yeah. Kingpin makes a cameo in that. And he ends up facing off against effectively a teenage girl. And yeah. I always feel that you know, Alan disagrees with me. He thinks it was like the character was made softer. So it was more family friendly for that series. But I think it was in line with his character because he suddenly realised he was fighting a woman. And the idea of hitting a woman was quite anathema to him. So he was kind of having to push himself in order to even defend himself. Yeah. And I think it wasn't just that he was hitting a woman. He was hitting a child that he'd seen sort of being raised. Yeah. And whom he did feel familial affection for. Um, And his respect for women. And actually, you just also see him. He's not someone who who takes anger out on on children not in his presence if that makes sense he's not a burn the orphanage kind of person so that he can stand there and enjoy the flames because um he that's not actually where his trauma led him to being or what what his background kind of leads to so it makes total sense yeah Uh, You also need to establish ill intent now it's easy to have a villain say that they will kill the protagonist Um, But the question is, will they? Uh, There's a much better way of showing a villain's ill intent. Uh, Cruelty can work quite well in this scenario because if a hero is in the is is in sorry if a hero is in the villain's power and does get hurt because of it, it establishes that the villain is likely to hurt them in the future because they didn't hold their hand that first time. Yeah, and this is also a way that you can create kind of like a sort of a multi-layer journey into villainy in that you might have a villain who at the start wouldn't actually be able to go through with their threats but then because the hero actually foils them in the first instance and everything kind of gets worse they begin to target the hero from a place of absolute anger in order to have vengeance Um, and so they go from being someone who wasn't really capable of doing harm or going through with their threats to someone who is now very much motivated to going through with those threats and you believe it because you see their kind of their nervousness transform into genuine anger yeah uh, a quite good example of that is um warren from the buffy the vampire slayer series Mm. um Now, when we meet him, it's kind of funny, almost, because he's made himself a robot girlfriend. Except that when you really think about it, there's something inherently very creepy about that. Because um, even though he's made this amazing, very lifelike, almost almost kind of Turing test ready uh, robot type, um, type woman... He's then actually met a real girl and properly fallen in love. But he's programmed this robot to love him. And she becomes this unstoppable force because in her programming says she loves him and she must find him. Yeah. And it's kind of drawing a line that, you know, this is not a great guy because he has not thought about the consequences of his actions. In that episode, it's kind of like, well, that's a a boyish, quite nerdy and weird thing to do and the upshot is his girlfriend almost gets killed by this robot yeah um and then she dumps him quite understandably because she t- turns out that your boyfriend's ex is actually someone he literally made to love him and that's sort of a whole can of worms that maybe you don't want to deal with yeah <laughs> he then turns up in a later series with a couple of other nerds 
but he is really the evil force in that trio because he now genuinely really hates Buffy and he kind of hates women. He's he's well on his way to becoming a proper incel. Yeah. Um, and he kind of wants to get his girlfriend back. I mean, they create something that is basically a mind control device. And with the other two, it's kind of like this this very childish, boyish, ha ha ha, we can make her dress up as a maid kind of thing. Um, but with Warren, it, it's kind of a, no, 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 hang on a minute, this, hang on, this, this girl is like your, actually your girlfriend, your ex-girlfriend, that's really messed up, you're forcing her to come back to you. And as she names it herself, she said, no, let's call it what it is, it's rape. Yeah. It's like, if you mind control somebody and make them do things, you know, you're not actually making them want to do those things, you're just making them do them. Yeah. And this sort of thread runs through his character and he sort of builds on it and gets worse and worse and worse. So it's that escalation process that you've just described. Yeah. Um, and it, it, it can work very, very effectively. It's I, I particularly like it when essentially uh, sort of the hero actually becomes part of the villain's origin story in that way. Yeah. Um, and sometimes that can also be used to expose some of the weaknesses of the hero. Their yeah. overconfidence, their lack of you know, engagement in a moment, their their sort of pure blind adoption of the of a system which isn't actually inherently fair, etc. Weirdly, I mean, he is not more powerful than Buffy by a long stretch. And he only gets away with what he does so long by staying in the shadows with these other two nerds as well. Hmm. Um and they're more annoying than anything else. <laughs> Even Buffy's kind of like <laughs> One of them's like, yes, we banded together. And Buffy's like, what, to be pains in my ass, you know? <laughs> yeah, and... I, I, oh, sorry, go on. But I mean, the, the problem is those um, those ill intentions actually signify something that's that's really dark and nasty. As funny as it starts off being, it's not funny in the end, ultimately. Yeah, and I think it works particularly in Buffy, obviously, because it's sort of tempered by lots of other different kinds of villains um, who sort of have different sort of roles within the story, but also as a sort of a reflection of society where you do have people like that. You have incels, you have people where you're like, actually, you know, this kind of, it's almost funny, th th this view, these these people, oh, that's pathetic, etc. Until it's not, until people actually die, until, you know... Until someone drives a, a truck or something in, into a restaurant or... Yeah. And until boys will be boys, you know, it's like, oh, he's just teenage moodiness becomes someone is dead, you know. Um, and it can just go 180 like that very, very quickly. Um, so kind of depending what you're trying to say with your story, a hero, sorry, a, a hero versus a villain who is, does appear to be a little bit more annoying and therefore kind of gets overlooked until they've gone too far can be very effective. Yeah, definitely. Um, you also want to get your audience to root against the villain, so if your story has medium to high stakes, you shouldn't really need cruelty to establish that. Hmm. Um, you just need to give your villains goals that are worth opposing. Yeah. Um, and again, it can, you can also have give your villain a goal which isn't necessarily worth opposing, but a, a, a sort of a solution which is. So you might say their goal is to raise money in order to sort of help their 
their child get a life-saving operation. We see that a lot of the time and, you know, I've seen that in various Marvel ones. Um, we see it in uh, sort of, mis- I think it's Mr. Freeze or whatever. Um, yeah. It's one of the Spider-Man villains as well. Um, you know, is is that it's all love for the, love for a child, love for someone else, you know, and it's all sort of even altruistic kind of, actually, this is, I'm trying to do this for the good of humanity. Um, and then it, but it, it no the goal is itself laudable but the but the ends don't justify the means by which like but in order to do that i will happily kill 80 people in order to sort of rob this bank or kill all these people in order to reach my goals because that is more important so you can kind of play around with it a little bit but essentially you need to have the villain do something which is a step too far yeah yeah, it doesn't always have to be they invaded Poland. It can just be, oh, maybe what if we targeted this family down the road kind of thing because yeah. we don't like their religious practices. Yeah. Um, basically, use a light touch. Exaggerated depictions tend to look unrealistic. And believe it or not, you are actually creating a sympathetic resonance between your audience and the villain, even if they don't like your villain. Yeah. Um, if you make your villain too cartoonish, people can just sort of start to laugh at them. It's the bit, it's the Skeletor moment sometimes, you know, it's the... <laughs> where you're like, you kind of almost like Skeletor because he's just so pathetic in some respects. Um... <laughs> do, do you know what I mean? <laughs> I'm thinking, I'm like, are you talking about Skeletor from the original 80s cartoon? Because he was actually... I mean, he had his, yes, I want to be evil moments, but... He's very memeable. Uh, yes, just he's very memeable. <laughs> he's very memeable. Um, and people like a good meme. Um, but, but yeah, if, if you kind of do make someone a little bit too cartoonish, it can be, uh, just seem a little bit much. Now, you can have a villain who is just absolutely violent and cruel and just absolutely would be the kick the puppy kind of person. Um, but... I tend to find that having that character as more of a, like a lieutenant, a minion, rather than the big bad, can work much better. Yeah, see, I still think you should give them proper characterization. Oh, I agree. No, proper characterization is always important. But you, what I'm saying is that you can have a properly characterized, complete psychopath as a villain. But you've kind of got, they've got to be a character who does stand on, on on their own two feet, as it were. Yeah. Um, the same thing goes for rants and physical threat displays. So a truly threatening villain, ironically, doesn't actually need to issue threats. Yeah. Though, again, it depends on the situation and it depends on the character that you're sort of trying to portray. For example, um, if you have Azula from Avatar The Last Airbender, she is someone who... Uh, does sort of throw out threats like there's no tomorrow. Um, But a big part of her whole character is that she's still a teenage girl. She's very powerful. She's been pushed into a certain role. She's had kind of stuff done to her, you know, in her childhood. And she's been pushed in certain ways whereby, you know, she's not had any sort of stable emotional upbringing. And this all leads to her essentially having a breakdown because she kind of loses touch with the friends that she thought she did have. um, And then she can no longer trust people and she's completely on her own and she loses it. Um, 
And this was all part of the, of her building character. So it's not a never say never situation. It's a how do I make this character three dimensional? Well, it's more that we're talking about creating menacing villains rather than creating villains. So yeah, it's no, the I'm whole... sorry. I do mean that she she is quite a menacing villain. I should say, you know. Yeah. But what it, what it's I mean about is delivery. <laughs> Yeah, in order to be threatening, a villain doesn't need to issue threats. They might issue threats because they need to issue a threat, but they don't need to issue a threat in order to be considered threatening, if you see what I mean. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so another thing that you need to think about is giving the villain victories, which sounds counterproductive, but it's important. Yeah, Um, in many stories, villains enjoy a lot of victories before they're even introduced. Um, This is something I did in Slice of Death. Uh, people are dying all over Oxford of a mysterious illness that kills them in their sleep, which, you know, can't be explained, but seems to be some sort of heart failure. Mm-hmm. Um, it's later discovered that Evergreen Technologies, which is trying to buy Amy's physics department, has been using a supernatural predator to kill off people who will not sell property around the city via their housing shell company. So they're trying to gain territory by killing off people and then getting their relatives to sell off the property they were trying to acquire, essentially. Yeah. Devious. <laughs> Devious, but but largely successful until Hark and Blackthorn work out what they're doing. Exactly. And wins are important because an audience needs to see that the villain is capable of success and that the hero can lose. Otherwise, you aren't going to have good stakes. No. Um, for a stealthier entrance, you could have your villain succeed at several objectives that aren't harmful or don't appear to be harmful. So, for example, a friend who helps the hero may turn out to be working for the villain, which adds weight to the betrayal later on. Mm-hmm. So, again, um, if you've read Harker and Blackthorn, you'll know uh, Donald Robinson, Don, to his friends, sort of has this friendship with Amy and then yeah. turns out to have basically lured them away to the salt marshes where... Um, Certain scientists from the research and development department of Evergreen are trying to create test test situations to find out what exactly Amy is capable of. Yeah. Which almost results in them dying several times. Yes, and definitely has some long-lasting consequences uh, for the group dynamic, particularly with other characters. Um. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Now, once the villain is identified, you need to keep a careful record of wins. The hero needs to keep drawing breath, so you may need the villain to have goals that don't include killing the hero. Um, Or you need the audience to be in on why the villain is not acting yet. Now, obviously, Harker and Blackthorn, another great example. Um, It becomes very apparent that Evergreen Technologies is a front for the board and that the board is controlled by the director who has identified Amy as necessary for the great work. Don't know what that is yet, but it's obviously nothing good. Hence, (laughs) Evergreen are under orders not to attack um, or surveil Harker and Blackthorn, except from a distance. Now, this actually ends up obviously causing a schism inside of Evergreen, uh, with the chief of staff of Umber Division going rogue because he believes Amy is too dangerous to live um, and also has a bit of a personal bone to pick with her. Uh, Now, considering his privileged knowledge of the great work, he might just be right, but we don't know because (laughs) Jules is not revealing anything yet. (laughs) I can say nothing. 
Um, we also need to consider that not all villains go for immediate world domination. They accumulate small victories that are part of a grand plan. So, for example, season three of Buffy the Vampire Slayer, Mayor Wilkins, whose end goal is to merge with a demonic entity and become a giant snake demon, um, has all sorts of steps, which sounds really ridiculous. And, you know, the CGI didn't really do it any favours back in the 90s. But the actual idea of the story was kind of like, that's actually quite disturbing. That's a very specific, goal-orientated man going for a particular type of power and look what he's willing to do on the way. And I think the thing that kind of foils Buffy and the team is the fact that actually all these these weird little disparate things that are happening around Sunnydale are they kind of don't all go together because they haven't found the rite of ascension ritual yet. Yeah. Um, and yet all these things are important for this rite of ascension. And he actually causes a lot of harm and a lot of harm to their group dynamic as well. Yeah. Now, one way that you can also do it is to have the villain have a victory, but not a complete victory. So let's say the villain is trying to uh, sort of is going to destroy a certain area uh, or a certain building and they're you know, um, that is their goal. They need to destroy the site for whatever reason. Now, the hero could get in and could end up saving everybody who's on, you know, in that area, who were just going to be collateral damage um, and, you know, actually managing to survive themselves. So the hero has had a win there in that they've saved everyone, but they've not, but they've had a lose in that they've stopped the uh, sort of they haven't been able to stop the villain. And the villain could then just have a complete win because it didn't really matter whether people lived or died. The main objective has still been achieved, which was to destroy the base, etc. Yeah. Okay, other things that you need to consider. Well, cultivate the minions. Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> not the actual little, not the cute little minions, but Ugh, the general minions. Would you call them cute? Anyway. Um... <laughs> <laughs> Do they creep you out? It's not that they creep me out, it's just that they annoy me. Um... Now, okay. <laughs> even low-level minions should be scary at first. This is a big supernatural thing where it was like, at one point demons were scary, and now it's just, they're like, eh, <laughs> another day, another demon. Um, so uh, we should consider, actually, Hayes uh, from I Belong to the Earth and how M actually reacts to him compared to how she reacts to, you know, the dark thing in I Rule the Night. Yeah, we had a joke about this where it's like in the first book, oh, Hayes, he's really, really scary. And then by the fourth book, it's like Hayes pops up and Em's like backhands him out of the way. <laughs> Move, bitch, get out the way. <laughs> it is, it's just, this is like, it's like by the last book, she's basically got Hayes on sort of speed dial, like, hey, Hayes. <laughs> He's like, okay, I know I owe you one, but what is it you want? Well, there's this thing up in Edinburgh. In Edinburgh, you say, okay, I need to move to another plane of existence because I do not want anything to do with that fight. Have fun, yeah. Bill Walker. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But it makes sense, obviously, because of the way that M has grown. And the minions should be, depending sort of what their role is, at a certain level of strength at certain points, whereby they do also pose a threat. Yes. Uh, basically, this helps develop hero prowess as well as increasing threat levels as the story goes on, which is particularly useful if you're writing a long series, for example. Yeah. I feel that's where Supernatural kind of dropped the ball a little bit after about season six. 
mm. because they kind of, I don't think they expected to still be going and they'd sort of escalated the threat level to the point where it's like, you, you've both literally been to hell several times now. Yeah. <laughs> where are we going from here? <laughs> it's like at one point they just had to be fighting actual God. So like, it just, yeah. I don't know, it just feels a little bit too much. Um, but yeah, so... Minions can also be used to distance the villain from failure, which is actually a very powerful tool. Um. Yeah, especially since you want the villain to come across as at least somewhat competent. So having a sort of like, ah, you, you know, you stupid plebeian sort of underling, you've ruined my plans for the last time, etc. Well, that's that's a very sort of comic book depiction I've just done there. Yeah. Um, that does actually help because you don't. Maybe initially you've got the villain and they're just they're not even going to dirty their hands against the you know they're not going to break a nail against something. Is thinking of season five of Buffy now where it's like glory being a god. It's like I'm not fighting a vampire slayer. How, how common, you know? Yeah. It, and it is the whole. It, it ends with the whole joke of uh, if you want something done right, do it yourself. <laughs> yes. I keep sending, keep sending thousands of minions against you, and you keep killing them. I suppose I'm going to have to do something about you. Yeah, and all you can think of is if you actually got off your, your ass and did it in the first place, the uh, the hero would have no chance. But you've helped them level up to the extent of being <laughs> to destroy you. You've basically trained them. Um. Yeah. Um, the villain also doesn't have to be the minion's overbearing boss. So. Uh, I think it was like, is it Teen Wolf, um, where one big boss type character basically puts a bounty on all the heroes' heads <laughs> and then just sits back and waits for all these renegade bounty hunters to come in and start trying to kill them in order to collect the cash. Yeah. Which causes absolute, you know, that's the sort of thing that would cause absolute chaos for a group. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> um, it's also... Um quite good if you basically have more important minions who act on their own or go rogue yeah i've got a lot of that happening where i think i mean again harker and blackthorn spoilers but after a certain amount of exposure to lodestone (laughs) um they tend to go a little bit nuts as well because we're not really designed for the the psychic load, if you like, or e- even the sort of effects that that this sort of un- undistinct, undifferentiated radiation causes in our genetic material. Yeah, and um, um, without a stable childhood, <laughs> also it's not like there's a, yeah, there's and on a top lot of, to build yeah. on. <laughs> As Steve rightly points out, it's like, oh right, so first you traumatize them for about a decade, then you expose them to this highly unstable mineral, and then you just sit back and see what happens. I'm not surprised they keep betraying you and going off and doing their own thing. Yeah. It is this whole sort of, we're going to suppress, 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 and then give them a whole lot of power that destabilizes, and then we're kind of weirdly surprised when they don't actually have the tools to be able to deal with it and just go off the rails. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, having a, a sort of minions kind of moving around as sort of in de- starting you know as as kind of being un- underlings but also then moving on into independence or having independent sort of pieces moving on board can create a lot of interest particularly if you are writing a series or have a longer piece of work yeah 
Uh, the next is that you want to maintain the villain's mystique. Uh, now, the classic threatening villain is designed to be scary. For example, Sauron, although um, a lot of classic horror, and horror villains also work, is, you know, a perfect sort of <laughs> figurehead for the, the classic kind of terrifying, overbearing villain. Yeah, but, you know, largely ineffable, kind of, they're, they're off the page a lot of the time. So, I mean, they shouldn't feel too familiar. They shouldn't even feel human. And Sauron is basically this thread of darkness that runs throughout the Lord of the Rings trilogy. Mm. Um, but he's actually on screen or on page very little. It's his influence, you see, and we never actually see his actual face. Yeah. Now remember, this is obviously just one type of way of basically creating a villain. But essentially, if you don't hold back the monster or limit your audience's exposure to your scary villain, um, they will cease to be threatening or scary. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, it's the shark in Jaws. Thing. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, aside from the very practical consideration, that if you're making a film, then you're your fear factor is only as good as your special effects, which, you know, back in the 70s were not as good as they are now. And no yeah. doubt in 30 or 40 years' time, people will look back on, on now and say, well, the special effects weren't all that great, were they? Yeah. Um, nobody would have believed that. So, uh, so yeah, that there is that idea where you don't see very much of Jaws at all. You really only see the fin a couple of times. A lot of it is down to the music and the mood, and the fact that things are set up and you realise how vulnerable the humans are in this particular story at certain points. Yeah. Um, I think there's only one or two scenes where you actually see the shark lunge out of the water. And on today's enhanced televisions and various other screens, it doesn't look that great. But, you know, back in the 70s when that film was made. <laughs> yeah. And it was the, you know, to be honest, the scariest part of Jaws is, is really the beginning before you actually really see it. Because... You know, you get these hints of it, you get the hints of the size, you get the hints of the monstrosity of it, and it plays into this could be real whilst also being totally unnatural in some respects, in that it feels... You, you create your own level of horror according to what you feel is kind of conceivable whilst also being inconceivable. It's this weird duality, and it, it really works in making a villain terrifying yeah your biggest advantage when it comes to creating a classic scary uh, threatening villain mm -hmm. is your audience's imagination so you just give them enough of you give them enough of the dots that they'll join them and create their own picture kind of thing yeah plus you you want to create that level of mysticism because if you have the hero the sorry the villain out getting sort of getting their hands dirty then they they come closer to the earth um, they just feel a lot more tangible at any given moment whereas if they're high up and beyond and you see very little of them they feel so out of reach that they can really feel even more powerful yeah um, however you can have a classic scary villain uh, who is a lot more on the page or on the screen mm -hmm. if they have the two following attributes so number one they do not think or operate like a human and number two they have a high novelty factor mm. 
So for example, the T-800 from Terminator is a great example of this. Literally a robot designed to kill, so goodbye Asimov's rules of robots interacting with humans. Mm -hmm. um, and it cannot be reasoned with or bargained with. It will not stop, and it has zero empathy. There is something genuinely very frightening about that concept. Yeah, which again is sort of the Jaws situation, to be honest. Um, Except the Terminator's on screen a lot, because the whole yes. point of it is this very visual thing coming after you. Yeah. Um, an alternative is obviously the Joker from from Batman, yeah. um, who is a great on... I mean, you wouldn't necessarily think of the Adam West Batman series, I'm sure, <laughs> um, where it was all a bit silly. Um, um, but you know, I know enough of it. <laughs> <laughs> but the Joker... I mean, I was watching the reruns, but I mean, the Joker in the in the... The graphic novels and the Joker, as we've has been reimagined many times in in various Batman films and iterations, is a genuinely scary on screen villain because he's unpredictable. He mm -hmm. is, he is sort of chaos personified. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and again, you get that level of unreachability. Uh, not because they're, he's not there, but because he can't be reasoned with. Yeah. Um, and I think this type of villain is very can be very, very successful and can work very, very well. I mean, it's the same with zombies or things like that. Or, or uh, I couldn't even finish watching it, but Jeepers Creepers. The creature in Jeepers Creepers. Ella said that, my, that's my youngest sister, she was kind of like, oh god, it's such a scary film. And I I think at the time it came out, I'd got to the point where I was like, I was finding most horror that was coming out at the time really boring, so I never watched it. Yeah, I think for me, it's because I didn't even watch the whole of it, because I, I don't really like horror films, and I particularly don't like gory stuff. But I saw enough of it, and I knew enough of it for it to really freak me out, and it was my first time that I sort of come in contact with a sort of a horror where there was no happy ending. They didn't defeat the monster, they didn't win. There was just this, if you know, if you fall on his radar, that's it. There is no escape. There's no way that you can sort of get away from it. There's no happy ending. The The only way you can survive is to not sort of be sort of caught by him, is to not catch his interest. And you have no way of knowing whether you will catch his interest or you won't. Um, and that was, because that was the first time I'd encountered that and it was terrifying. And it was the same with the woman in black in the, it's the, the, a matter totally beyond your control. Yeah. Okay, so finally, if you want to you want people to believe in your villain, you should do the following. So, unless you're creating an inhuman scary villain that has no empathy, for example, the Terminator or Michael Myers from the Halloween franchise. Yeah. Give the audience tiny glimpses of their humanity. Yeah. So, again, let's use I belong to the earth as an example. Um Hayes slips and shows his very relatable, if incredibly excessive, <laughs> uh, grief. You know, he did start out as human and part of him still feels human. And this makes him believable because we are all aware of the constant need to choose good over evil within ourselves, even when life is difficult or heartbreaking. And, um, you know, obviously uh Jules played on the I belong to the earth thing you know played on on what makes 
Heathcliff, what's the one redeemable feature about Heathcliff is his love, which is also one of his major faults. Yeah. And that is something that Hayes really has in that it is very much that I would burn the world for you. Yes. Um, and damn all the other people. And I think that, you know, there is an element of people sort of not necessarily wanting others to burn the world for them, but for the idea of a love that fierce. You know, yeah. it, it kind of plays on, it plays into people and people can understand that or understand or want for it to succeed in some respects. Even if you don't agree with, again, the, the means to the end. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Um, it's far easy, easier for us to believe in a corrupted human than a moustache-twirling villain. Um, I don't want to give spoilers because this book doesn't come out until November, but I was lucky enough to receive an arc of Stephen King's Holly, mm -hmm. uh, which is his latest novel. And basically Holly Gibson is a character who turns up in his Mr. Mercedes trilogy and then went on and got more of a starring role in The Outsider, which sort of followed on from that. And then she got her own novella and now she's got her own novel. She's become this very beloved character. Mm. Um, she's clearly somewhere on the autism spectrum, but they don't really talk about that in indefinite. Holly herself has never really felt the need for a diagnosis. She had a very troubled relationship with her mother. Her mother was very overbearing and it's taken Holly almost sort of 40 years to really get out from under her mother's thumb. Mm -hmm. And now in the book Holly, she's running this private investigators firm, Finders Keepers, which she was left by Bill Hodges of the Mr. Mercedes trilogy. Mm -hmm. And she's asked to find this missing girl. And then it sort of turns out that there might be more missing people. And at this point, because Stephen King has kind of liberally sprinkled in, like with the Finders Keepers trilogy and, and the rest of it, and certainly in the rest of Holly's books, she, it's kind of like, oh, this will be something supernatural. And you're waiting, you're waiting for the supernatural thing. You're waiting for the thing that is beyond human evil. And then you discover it isn't. And it's so much more disturbing because it is very much human evil. And that's all I will say about the book. Yeah, and I, I do think that that's something really that Stephen King is very, very good at. Um, and it he, in that way, he actually you know, really demonstrates how you can have two sort of villainous characters. And one can be worse, um, or what you would consider to be worse, in that they can be the, the you know, the more powerful villain, but they're not actually the main villain. Um, and you see it in zombie movies as well, like The Walking Dead. Uh, very often, obviously, the, the the worst villain, the most terrifying villain, are the, are the, the walkers, the zombies. They cannot be consulted with. They will just eat you. They have power in hordes. You know, there are this constant heavy force and they're terrifying, you know. But at the same time, most of, most of the sort of the plot revolves around these sort of politics and these roving people and these humans who are sort of working together and betraying each other and falling into certain traps and, and sort of territorial behaviour as they struggle to survive this, this apocalyptic world. And they really are the scary thing. And in Stephen King's The Mist, you know, we really see that in that the most horrifying thing about The Mist isn't necessarily the monsters that are on the outside. It's what the, the, the presence of the monsters on the outside does to the group of people all stuck together 
in the supermarket yeah. and the monsters that they can become, the very believable monsters in some respects. Yeah, absolutely. So basically, it doesn't mean you can't have terrifying non-human monsters. I mean, if you want a Lovecraftian monster as your villain, that's fine. Mm-hmm. Um, but you do need to be careful about adding access points for your audience. So um, with Lovecraft, your access point probably isn't going to be the villain itself. It's going to be how people react to that. Um, it's why a lot of Lovecraftian monsters, Dagon, Cthulhu, etc., basically have priesthoods who, you know, you'll have at least one person who's kind of like, no, this is the right way. He is our Lord and Saviour. Someone who is literally kind of going mentally unstable if you like under the weight of this this bleak godhood that's um that's in front of them yeah it what's really frightening about those monsters are the sort of way they warp reality and change the human mind i think yeah and very often their presence is felt in the way that other characters are behaving rather than you know they're not seen really until the end a lot of the time but their presence is very much demonstrated in how everyone else is acting and everyone else is sort of reacting to things um, which makes villainy in certain areas and can create antagonistic forces and obviously there is a difference between antagonism and and villains Uh, but you know, you can have lots of antagonistic forces and one villain. All of these can work together to create a very engaging story. Yes, absolutely. So, you know, just to summarise, you don't have to do any of these things to make your villain threatening. Um, It does help to have a sense of proportion, I think. You certainly don't have to combine everything here, and a lot of these things wouldn't combine well together. Yeah. In fact, if you tried to, it would be a massive... uh... You know, on the one side we're saying make sure that your sort of your villains feel human, and on the other side we're saying make sure they're mysterious and feel totally non-human. If you try to do it, it would be a huge contradiction in terms. Um, what you just want to do is figure out what is the right villain for your story, and how can you then, according to that, use certain tools in order to make them threatening and avoid pitfalls, which can sort of make them cartoonish if that's obviously not the uh, the effect you're going for um and stereotypical or unengaging yeah absolutely so i mean before we go i mean i do have to ask jules what do you think is sort of the most terrifying kind of villain for you which of these mm. sort of the, the villains from the sort of the ones that we've looked at do you think are the ones that really scare you i don't know i find that that's kind of a difficult one um, to answer because I don't think I have a normal fear reaction. No, you <laughs> don't do you. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's more sort of what unsettles me, I guess. And a, a villain, um, certainly if you take something like Randall Flagg from mm-hmm. The Stand, I wouldn't say he's scary and he's kind of a personification of the devil, but not quite. It's the fact that the way he can make other people act or react, uh, the way he can sell them lies, and they'll know they are lies, but they want to believe, so they'll follow him. Um, and he'll make it seem reasonable to them, that that sort of thing. Um, that there, there is definitely a sense of menace there that's, that's quite frightening. 
uh, if you take Pennywise from it, then that wouldn't necessarily be scary because everyone's like, oh, Pennywise is just a clown. It's like, well, no, actually, it will turn into the thing you're most afraid of. Yeah. Um, even if that's something that's really quite nebulous and intangible. Um, that idea is quite unsettling. And the sort of bleakness of some of the Lovecraftian monsters are unsettling. I have to say, I had some very, very weird dreams after reading Holly because of the human evil aspect of it. It was really quite <laughs> disturbing. So, um, you know, if we're going for villains that sort of seem to tick the right... This has unsettled me, Box. It's probably Stephen King related. Yeah. I mean, I think for me, it it very much depends because certain villains will sort of create a sense of terror in how that they in how they are menacing and others will create a sense of horror um you know and with obviously there being a clear distinction between the two and definitely when it comes to horror i'm very much more like i'm very much more likely to be horrified by the inhuman villain yeah i'm um, thinking of the borg as well actually yeah the the sort of the ones where they could just cut into you and you could be screaming and it it wouldn't even mean anything to them like they they lack empathy they they just don't even see you as alive they don't care they will you know it's the zombies as well i don't like zombies they will just eat you while you're alive uh, it's like bears <laughs> polar bears um, that's they're horrifying in in terms of sort of villains uh whereas sort of terrifying villains uh which kind of really unnerve you tend to be the ones who do have some kind of uh you know humanity or are much more kind of present within the story um and feel kind of more like they you you could touch them like they do exist like they could be real so stephen king again really playing into making people do horrific things or playing into um, the true evils that humans can commit uh, which feel like something that could genuinely happen they are the terrifying villains um, yeah. and when you put them together like Stephen King does a lot it it's very effective <laughs> yeah I think I mean in some of his books it's not there's not even an outside villain who is definitely the villain so things like Pet Cemetery, the real villain is is almost um the, the main character's grief and what yeah. that uh, you know how that allows him to do the mental gymnastics of, of things he knows he shouldn't do yeah yeah so I, I think it, it it can be very very effective but yeah ultimately you need to ask what kind of story am I telling and do I need my my villain to be horrifying do I need them to be terrifying um and why do I need those things so yeah. bear that in mind guys uh right well we're gonna wrap this up but before we do it is time for our dissecting dragons recommendation of the week and jules i believe that you've got another one for us this week yeah i've just finished reading god killer by hannah kana good good title um, <laughs> and it's it was a release in january and you know i've come a bit shamefully late to the party i should have finished the arc in january but i had other things going on so i didn't get there yeah um, it is however a really really good book um it starts off with a very young kissen who is the main character um 
being sacrificed to a fire god along with her entire family. There's no yes, real you point do. in saying that. Um, <laughs> it, they're not doing this voluntarily. They're vil- the people that they knew all their lives kind of turn on them, decide they'd be a good sacrifice, and you know they're going to burn them alive. Right. And she manages to survive, although you know quite badly injured. She loses a leg, for example, mm. and then you're sort of transported a few years forward um, to another, you know, Kissen sort of grows up and becomes a god killer. She hates gods after this. I can't imagine why. Yeah, can't imagine why. Um, and she becomes a you know, relatively talented god killer um, going around and just finding gods at their shrines and killing them. <laughs> and the thing is, there are no real good gods. There are no... And you could argue there are no real bad gods. They're almost personifications of the worst aspects of humans. Mm. Um, but once they get, once even a very small petty god gets uh, get, gets something like an offering, then they get a little bit bigger. And mm. you know, the more people sort of praise them and love them, which is what they want. They want love. They want shrines. They want adoration. They start getting hungry for more. So it's not just a loaf of bread or some sweets or, you know, a libation of wine, suddenly it's blood sacrifice and burnt offerings and, and then it becomes human offerings and things like that. Um, yeah. And the gods don't work well together. They work at cross purposes. So you ended up having humans fighting each other because gods were trying to take over each other's territories and things. It's all a big mess. Um, Kissen finds herself saddled with a 12-year-old girl who okay. has a god attached to her. Right. As in... A, a little little god that looks like a hare with a deer's body and golden antlers and wings, which sounds adorable because it's really, really tiny. Aww. <laughs> um, and this is the god of white lies. And they end up having to go on this long quest in order to try and get the two of them separated and other stuff happens along the way as well. And it's just a really, really good um, sort of quest fantasy that looks at, you know, what is faith? Is it necessary? How much of it are we responsible for? And how much of it do we need to sort of, you know, the the value of questioning things that we're asked to do, if you see what I mean. I'm I'm also always interested by the the idea of gods are only as powerful as we make them. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's a little bit sort of um, the idea from Terry Pratchett's Small Gods in that respect, but taken in a different direction. Yeah. And it was, I don't know, the sort of aesthetic is very Studio Ghibli in my head, or at least that's how I was seeing it. <laughs> Which is sort of funny considering it begins with thing. people being burned to death. Uh, so <laughs> I don't know, Studio Ghibli can be quite gory. <laughs> it can be, it can be. Okay, I will definitely have to check that out. And on that note, guys, we will say thanks very much for listening, and we'll catch you guys next week. Yeah, thanks and goodbye. Bye! You've been listening to Dissecting Dragons, the speculative fiction podcast. You can follow our podcast at podbean.com or from iTunes. For more information, visit our Facebook page at www.facebook.com forward slash dissectingreaders. Or check out our author websites at jaironside.com and madelinevaughan.com. Please note that no dragons were harmed during the making of this podcast.